Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Not long ago, I went back to my elementary school, a gothic brick-and-mortar fortress whose Escher-like stairs dead-end on floors that lie halfway between other floors and whose halls branch off into mysterious tunnels that suddenly disgorge a student into the cafeteria or the girls' locker room or the balcony of benches overlooking the auditorium that doubles as a gym. I wasn't surprised to find my younger self crying at the back of this or that classroom or staring up at some adult whose behavior baffled me or wondering the gloomy stairwells, wondering if I would ever find my way to a sunnier, less confusing, less confining life outside. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Eileen Pollack about her new book, Maybe It's Me, on being the wrong kind of woman. She discusses small events that blossom into lengthy musings about her childhood, her longing for friends, her parents, her house, her community. A story that starts with a memory of school turns into to one about how she and many of the people she knew survived childhood. An essay about a pet bird morphs into how she learned that stories are born of imagination. Eileen recalls trying to fit in with other girls as a teen, how sex helped her lose weight, how her father succumbed to hallucinations during his final weeks, and how she hopes to find someone to love who will love her for the rest of her life. I commiserated, empathized, and laughed while reading these moving, sometimes scarily recognizable glimpses into Eileen Pollock's life. In fact, although I'm not from upstate New York and we've never spoken or met until now, I feel like we've been good friends for years. Hi, Eileen. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Wonderful to be here. You have written and published hundreds of essays over the years. How did you choose which ones to include in this collection? Uh, what a good question. I, well, I like to think I chose the best ones, um, the ones that would last over time. So, you know, I wrote some that were fine for the moment, but, um, you know, 10 years later, <laughs> nobody would have been interested. And I think I was trying to cover the arc of my life really from childhood to the present moment, um, or at least the present moment when I put the book together uh, in my mid-60s. So your first book, uh, essay, Pigeons, describes a visit to your old elementary school in the Catskill Mountains, and it turns into memories of terrible teachers, classmates who struggled, and a boy who later battled mental illness. Ultimately, it's about, I think, who survived childhood and who didn't. Can you say more? Yeah, you know, I think um, a lot of us are revisiting our childhoods in light of, I think, the way the younger generation is causing us to see the world. Um, The Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, 
Um, and I think a lot of us are realizing <laughs> that you know, we were deeply traumatized by you know, this or that terrible thing that happened to us. But when I was writing that essay and some of the other ones, I, I was starting to look around the edges of my own, you know, terrible suffering and realizing that other people had suffered much more and they were no longer with us or they didn't have the means to be writing about what had happened to them. And so I started to be curious about the people who had dropped out of my sight what had happened to them, um, the, the, you know, the people that I didn't realize at the time were suffering much worse than I was. And that's pretty much what that essay ends up being about. Um, it starts off being about me and then, go, you know, what happened to this boy that I had a crush on in sixth grade? What, what, why didn't I even realize that he disappeared before we graduated? And why hadn't I wondered, why did it take me 40 years to wonder what had happened to him? Then Thin Air, the story of your pet bird, is intertwined with the story of your mother's cleaning lady and how you started writing stories. Intriguing. Do you still remember that moment when you figured out where stories came from? Yeah, you know, people wonder how I can remember so well things that, you know, happened when I was in kindergarten or even before that, and and they doubt it. You know, and I, some of the uh, bits of dialogue I even put in quotation marks, which to me is a sign that I actually remember pretty close to verbatim what was said. Um, and it's funny because I have a terrible memory for numbers, dates. I, I, you know, when you get sent a code on your phone and you have to transfer it into your computer and it's like only six digits long, I have to go one digit at a time. You know, I, I can't keep it in my head. But I do have that kind of memory for events. Um, and you know, what it was, was, I mean, the, this was a woman, I mean, you say cleaning lady, a woman who was in our house, you know, it was intimate on intimate terms with her for years. And then she, and she lived at the end of our block. Um, she died. I had questions. There were questions about how she died. What, what happened to her daughter? Was her daughter being abused? Was her daughter and husband abusing her? So again, it was one of those essays where it started out about the bird and me, but then was whatever happened to Helen and her daughter? Um, how did she die? Why did I never think of this before? Why did nobody think about that, that her daughter wasn't spoiled? Her daughter was probably being abused by this, the husband, the father who was abusing her. You know, so again, it, it, it's a story. Um, it's a journey. I always, whenever I write an essay, and this is how I teach essays and memoir, it's never just about what happened. So something wonderful could have happened to you, something terrible, that doesn't make an essay. It's what don't you understand about what happened to you? So it's a question. It's sort of you become a detective of your own life. And you know, the fact was that the bird, um, which I found on the front lawn of my high school when I was just a little kid, and nobody believed that I had really found, I thought it was a parrot, it was a parakeet. It ended up when I went away to college, I forgot, forgot about the bird, but the cleaning lady asked if she could have it. And she loved the, the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow. She wanted to be free. Anyway, the bird, which we were all trying to teach to talk, was there when she died. And I started to wonder, you know, if the bird could talk, what would it tell us? So, yeah, you know, it's a journey. You're trying to not just say what happened, but to interrogate what happened, to learn something new 
um, looking back on your own life and the lives of other people who, when you were living, they were on the periphery, and then they come to the fore. You, you, you really want to find out what happened to them. That's exactly what you do in the Jewish shot, which is hysterical, about a colleague of your father's who claims to be related to the last shot of Iran. So I know you studied the matter seriously, and your essays filled with twists and turns, but the last sentence was really powerful when you explained that you learned more about your father, but he was gone. Yeah, so that was the the other um, sort of structure of the essay, the, the structure of some of the other essays in the book is sort of, I'm looking at the intersection between my personal history, my family history, and the larger history of, if not the whole human race, some larger segment of society. So in that one, you know, I grew up with this family legend, which my father completely believed to be true, which was that his friend was a cousin of the uh, Shah. So it was the father of the Shah who was deposed um, when the Ayatollahs took over, that he was uh, originally from a Jewish family in Russia um, and to avoid conscription had gone over the Caucasus Mountains, ended up in Iran, Persia, and uh, somehow made it to the top in a coup. And my father believed it to the extent that he thought this was a terrible, dangerous secret and that if if the Shah found out we knew, he would send his secret service, his Savak, to, to bump us off. And, you know, my brother laughed at the story, but, you know, I was really curious about it. And I, I started to do research when I was on the faculty at University of Michigan and had the means to do so. And the more I researched, the more I came to believe it was true in the notion that the Shah of Iran might have been Jewish, uh, of Jewish ancestry, was just so amazing. But... Um, but what interested me were family legends, right? And what gets passed down in a family, does it turn out to be true? I had, for a previous novel, I had been really interested in the story of Sally Hemings, um, claim, the claim that um, Jefferson had fathered, um, you know, all these children with his slave Sally Hemings, long before, um, because I had a mentor who believed the story to be true, it was African-American. And it turned out, of course, it was true. So I'm really interested in family legends, the intersection of family history with larger history, but also there started to be parallels between, you know, what what the Shah's family knew about their father's ancestry, what I knew about or thought I knew about my father's time in the war. And then his friend had a daughter and see, the friend died very young and the daughter didn't know her father, but my father knew her father. Right. So it's not only what we know about history, but what we know about our own fathers, our own parents or don't know. And so I had I had one of my um, earlier short story collections called In the Mouth. The, the theme there is what parents think they know about their children, but don't really know. And what children think they know about their parents, but don't really know the secrets we keep from the generation before the generation after, um, you know, and the effect of what, it, what effect it has when you find out some of those secrets. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that's the Jewish Shah is, is um, the main example of that. So funny. In Ranch House, um, you speak about 1950s middle-class life, your mother and father, your mother and grandmother, but it's really 
kind of a love letter to the house you grew up in. Did you think so when you were writing it? Oh, very much so. So I, I love the essay form. You know, there, there are so many ways to structure it. And you can tell a story. You can structure the essay according to an event that happens in time or a journey that you take or an experiment that you carry out. And there are different essays in the book are structured according to that. But you can also structure an essay spatially. So like you use an object to order your thoughts. Like maybe you had a, a, a scrapbook or a, a baseball glove or something, and you tell the story of some part of your life with, you know, a look at the entries in this checkbook or, or something. And I, I decided to use my parents, the house I grew up in, to structure my meditation on why my family was so crazy. So my parents were really obsessive about keeping the house and everything in it and everything on the grounds outside perfectly orderly. There wasn't a speck of dust. Nothing was out of order. Everything was labeled. Everything was in Tupperware. And I was like, and they were terrified of like anything you know, coming in, <laughs> you know, monitor our health. And so the question was, well, why, how did they get to be that way? Why were they, it drove me crazy, but why were they so obsessive about the house and hygiene and health? And of course it goes back to the, you know, the, now the word everybody uses is trauma, but that generation, you know, their parents were immigrants. They grew up during the depression, um, World War II, poverty, and disease. Lots of people in my mother's family died young. And so I, I, I start to realize, and especially thinking about my grandmother's place in the house, I, nobody ever talked about it, but I figured out as I wrote the essay that she had lost family in the Holocaust. Nobody ever talked about that. Um, they were trying to keep out all of history, all the bad stuff. And so as you know about the immigrant experience, the climb to the middle class, and then how terrified you are of... Um, of, of the very real dangers that you've barely left behind. Uh, yeah, so my grandmother in that, she, she, I loved her dearly. She re- really was the loving person who raised me. And then um, she dissolved into dementia when I was in junior high and high school. And so I was trying to get at her story too. Like, you know, the, the story of why my parents uh, were, what were they so afraid of? Um, and, and then she becomes sort of the link to me figuring it out. But the question is, do you keep a clean kitchen and a perfect everything? <laughs> well, what's funny is my family thinks that I'm just this big mess and they, they just can't understand how I'm so slovenly and, you know, can't you know, my, well, I shouldn't say my nickname growing up was Moose because I was just such a mess. Um, but my friends <laughs> and people that I have lived with, roommates, ex-husband, son, you know, I, I'm probably the most oppressive, but, you know, I can't stand anything to be out of order. And, it, you know, my, my friends laugh at how in need I am, because even though my parents are long gone, you know, I, I, they're always the thought that they might come visit and find something the slight. I'm looking at the, I have a, a coffee cup and a glass and a knife that haven't been washed by the sink. Oh no. <laughs> my mother, my mother's looking down and she's embarrassed for me. <laughs> I know you'll get to it the minute this interview is over. The house of the world starts out to be about a small Jewish cemetery with about 1100 bodies hidden on the grounds of a GM manufacturing facility in Detroit. 
That's how it starts out. But it turns, the story turns out to be about the rise and fall of Detroit, eminent domain, and the destruction of a community. Can you say more about that? Well, again, you know, I, I like... Um... I like essays that are journeys or detective stories. If I don't find out something, if I don't discover something in writing it, then my reader isn't going to discover anything when reading the essay. So I was in a long-term relationship. After I got divorced, I was in a long relationship with a Polish Catholic man who had grown up in Detroit. Well, he was born in a DP camp in Germany after the war, but then his family, the Polish, came over and lived in Detroit. And his neighborhood had been destroyed by... General Motors took it over, destroyed everything, and uh, built a Cadillac plant there. And so he he told me um, he was very interested in sort of recreating the history of that neighborhood. And he told me that there was this Jewish cemetery in the middle of the GM plant. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, and it was only open twice a year on uh, just before the Jewish holidays. And we figured out how to get inside. And it was just the most remarkable discovery journey. How did this get here? And why, you know, the GM knocked down everything else in this huge neighborhood, this huge part of Detroit. Why didn't they also dig up the cemetery? Why did they live it, leave it, who was buried here? But then I also realized um, it was the key to Marion's history um, and to Polish-Jewish-African-American relations in Detroit, um, I just became fascinated by the whole thing. And so it becomes another sort of the uh, interplay of the personal and the larger historic sort of civic history of a place. Um, and, you know, I lived in Ann Arbor for, I don't know, 27 years. And there are people in Ann Arbor who, who would brag to me that they had only been in Detroit once. You know, people were terrified to go in or something. And, you know, Marion had grown up there. He He did a lot of work there. And so we went in all the time and, I, I really got to know it through him much better than I would have if, if, if I hadn't known him. And um, it was it was a great discovery of, you know, here in in Europe, the Pol- Polish Jews and Polish Catholics, you know, were enemies. And then they come to the new world and choose to settle in the same neighborhood and then sort of get destroyed together. Uh, along with the African Americans who were living in the neighborhood too, so I was I was just fascinated by that mystery. You have another uh, story that uh, centers on cemeteries and about your grandparents and the burial society where they rest. Um, you also, at the end of that, where they uh, invested money so that they could all be buried uh, close to each other. But the point of that story seems to be, at the end, you say cemeteries, what you learned, cemeteries aren't wastes wastes of space, even with real estate so expensive. How else can we be reminded of of who our ancestors were? Yeah, I love cemeteries. I, I, you know, you just find such interesting things there. I've always, I've always liked exploring them wherever, wherever I go. Um, That one... You know, it's, it's, it's what I love about writing essays is that things come together as you're writing them, as you go on your journey, as you're trying to solve the mystery. It's like um, those that toy I had when I was a kid where you draw a magnet through some iron filings and it makes a picture of a man, you know, with a beard or something. It, there's like a magnet and it, it attracts iron filings. So 
Um, my mother was dying and I had always wanted to go see where my, her parents were buried because that was the grandmother that I loved so much. I'd never, never been there. She didn't want me to go. It was a dangerous neighborhood. I'd get killed, but I wanted to go and I wanted to come back and tell her I had been there. So um, I, I made it out into the Bronx. I found it, um, but uh, it was on my mind. So my, my grandfather was a socialist. My son is a socialist. Um, the many of the victims of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire were buried right in the same cemetery, very near my grandparents. And it was um, the same day that uh, a, a sweatshop in Bangladesh had um, collapsed and killed many, many, many Bangladeshi workers. So it was a very similar story to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and, you know, the socialists who had um, protested the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and my son and my mother dying. So all that comes together um, as I just simply go on a quest to f- see if I can find my uh, grandparents' burial spot and figure out what this, I mean, I, I loved the name of the, it was the Young Friends Pleasure and Benefit Society and it was a burial society. It just seems so strange to me that that was how my grandparents would have organized their social life because it was also why you were alive. Um, they had all sorts of events. Um, it was everybody from the same little village in, you know, what's now Ukraine. Um, but, but it was also to pay for your burials, you know, so that your children wouldn't have to pay. Um, and all of it just sort of came together, you know, as I went on this rainy day quest to, to say goodbye to my grandmother whom I loved and the grandfather I'd never met. Hmm. You talk about your first trip to Israel alone. You were in your 50s. And what I really loved at the very end, you you describe your belief that the purpose of life is to heal the world. I can't agree with you more. But then you say, what you also came to understand is that religion is a game people play. How do you put both of those in the same sentence? Um, <laughs> well, I, th- I think, you know, uh, there are a lot of contradictions in this world. And one thing can be two very different things at the same time. And I think for some people, uh, following a religion is sort of a game. It's like uh, it gives your life a meaning in that you can follow all the little rules and do all the things you're supposed to do on that holiday. And you know, this verse or that meaning, and it, it makes you feel special. And it just, I, that bothers me. It's, there's a wonderful essay by a writer named Megan Dom called music is, in, is my bag. And it's, it's about the difference between people who love music. They just love music. They can't do anything else. And people who, for whom music is about the tchotchkes that go with it. Like you have a tote bag with, you know, um, something musical on it and a scarf that looks like piano keys and, you know, the lingo and, you know, it's just, it's about the paraphernalia and knowing what to do and and knowing, you know, uh, the the little bits and pieces. And, And I think it can be that way for religion. There are people for whom it really is a, a deeply meaningful way of being in the world where you're trying to make the world a better place and and um, and it can be both, you know, for the same person, or it's different things for different people. Um, and I was trying to figure out what it meant for me, um, uh, you know, 
uh, I grew up, what did you call it? Uh, Froom light, orthodox light, you know, with all the rules. So I know, I know all the, not all, but I know most of the rules <laughs> of Judaism. And, um, you know, and then there's this other stuff that's the actual theology of, you know, uh, tikkun olam, you know, making, healing the world. And, and there are parts of Judaism that are just very, very deeply in my soul um, the notion that there's a sort of divine spark in everything and not just the beautiful stuff, but the hideous, ugly, evil stuff. And that our job is to kind of see it, encounter it, connect to it, connect it to everything else, um, return it to the light. You know, that stuff keeps me going and, and really figures into how I think of writing as a, as a way to be in the world. Oh, that's so beautiful. So what are you working on next, Eileen? Well, I'm struggling with a novel. Um, whenever I write nonfiction, I wish I were writing fiction. Whenever I'm writing fiction, <laughs> I wish I were writing nonfiction. But it's, a, it, it's just what I was saying at the beginning about that essay, Pigeons. It's looking back at, in this case, the summer after my senior year in high school and trying to look at it in a new way, um, uh, had a relationship with a teacher um, that, you know, I, I now think of in a different way <laughs> than I thought of at the time and, and um, with a boss at work. And, and But also, again, looking around the edges to see how much worse everybody else had it and all the things. So like on Facebook, people from my town are always going on, oh, weren't things in the old days wonderful and perfect? And thinking, no, there were murders and child abuse and horrible things going on. Why, why is nobody ever talking about that stuff? Um, so yeah, so it's a look back with like the double vision of, of, you know, what I thought at the time versus what I think now in the society we're living in now in my 60s, looking back at those same events. It sounds fabulous and interesting. Keep me posted. Thank you so much again for joining me today. I had a great time. Thanks so much, Galit. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Eileen Pollack about her recent essay collection, Maybe It's Me on Being the Wrong Kind of Woman. Hope you have a juicy book to curl up with today and every day. Happy reading.